We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 15 today. Uh, last time we did chapter 14. Chapter 14 is when the kings of the east attacked the kings of the west because the kings of the west had decided they were no longer going to be subservient to the kings of the east. And as the, I'm sorry, yeah, the kings of the east. And as the kings of the east come down through the landscape, they conquer every area that they come to. And then south of the Dead Sea, there's this battle area where the kings of the west, Sodom, Gomorrah, and that group, go down to meet the kings of the east. And they all work together, but they are defeated. And as a result, the kings of the east take spoils, meaning their property and the people they wanted from both Sodom and Gomorrah. And Lot was living at Sodom, so Lot, his family, and his holdings all went with the kings of the east as they marched north and eventually would probably be headed back to the east with, with all these goods and people. Now Abram finds out, and Abram takes 318 trained men from his own household and three allies. And, and we don't hear anything about the allies bringing people along, but the allies are Mamre, Eshkol, and uh, Aner. Uh, they are both brothers and neighbors to Abram, and they were, they were friends and allies. And Abram leads the clan, and they go out and head north, and they defeat the kings of the east and chase them as far as Damascus. Abram regains all the goods and the people, and they're headed back home. On their way home, by home I mean homes of where these people had come from, they're met by the king of Sodom, east of the Salt Sea or Dead Sea, and also there he meets Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, as we pointed out last time, is a very key player in this story. He is the king of Salem and priest of the God Most High. And Abraham honors God by giving Melchizedek one-tenth of everything. That's the way the scriptures say it. And Melchizedek, as a result, or in the process of it, blesses Abraham and praises the God Most High. And the king of Sodom has a suggestion for Abraham. The king of Sodom says, Abram, keep all the goods that you have reclaimed and just send the people home. And Abraham says no. Do you remember why he said no? Yeah, so that you won't say you made Abram rich. Why was that important to Abraham, or Abram, at this point? What's that? He knew that God did it. Yeah, God's going to get this credit. Uh, it is God that is blessing Abram. And Abram there is showing his faith, humility, and thankfulness to God and his dependence upon God by refusing the suggestion of the king of Sodom as well as his gift to Melchizedek as a way of worshiping God. Now, why, why go into all these details again? Because of the way chapter 15 starts out. And so we need to, we need to have this in mind. And so let's read chapter 15 of Genesis. Rick, you want to get us started? You, Rick, would you, would you get us started on that today? I can. Okay. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eli Eli Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have been you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir, heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. <coughs> then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamonites, Kadamonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. All right, thank you, Rick. So I can I can see, you see why I had to pick on somebody so many names in it you know I just but you get a free pass on any name that's just the way the way it works in this class and so verse one starts out with after these things in other words this is related to what has happened God has clearly blessed Abram and uh, we're going to talk about that in a minute uh, about this blessing but Abram takes three hundred and eighteen men his fighting men in his own clan, which gives us an idea it's a pretty good-sized clan, but nonetheless, he takes out after multiple kings that have gone through and conquered everything in their path. And so here he is, clearly, he's been blessed by God, he's been successful, uh, he did the night attack, uh, maybe caught them off guard, probably good strategy, and yet even the good strategy is not why he was successful, is it? It's because of God's working with him, his promises to him, and the way it worked out. So uh, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, well, okay, let's talk about that. The word of the Lord came to Abram. So clearly, we're getting God talking here, and it's throughout this passage, passage, you'll see Lord, and this is, in each of these cases, it's the formal name of God, uh, its premier name, which is Yahweh. And it says it came, he came to him in a vision. Uh, this particular word is used four times in the Old Testament, and it means something seen. So there's a visual thing going on here, not a whole lot to go beyond that. We don't know if Abram was in a trance or if God appeared to him physically or what, but He's seeing something. This is an interaction that involved Abram's senses. Uh, so it's hard to describe it more specifically than that because we have times in the scriptures when it talks about God came to him in a dream or I was walking and I saw or whatever, but at least, at least we know that God is doing this and, it, and Abram is seeing something, but God is also saying, and what does he say? He says, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. So let's just talk about these three lines. Why would Abram in a normal human situation have reason to fear? But, yeah, yeah you, you just had these kings marching down through, taking over everything that got in front of them. You took 318 men up and took everything away from them. In just human terms, you could anticipate these kings might sit back and say, you know, who's this little pipsqueak think he is? And uh, be ready to march against him. And it's, it's interesting, the word that God chooses here, I'm your shield. What's a shield do? 
protects. It keeps the attack from being lethal or, um, or, or whatever you might say. In this case, according to the scriptures, uh, they don't even come. We don't see anything more of them after this encounter. Uh, God, through Abram, is kind of running back home without much in the way of spoils, if anything. We don't know what they had went home with because they conquered a lot of other lands, but they don't go home with anything from Sodom and Gomorrah in that region. No, this is not a normal conversation I mean, I at all. One of the things that I I think about and try to do in class is to relive it out in the eyes and perspective of the person that's involved. That's a little tough in this case. I can't say to any of you, remember the last time you had a vision with God, what did that feel like? That's what Abram's going through. No, it's kind of like, it's pretty limited on what we might be able to accurately imagine. I'm sure all of us have some imagining going on about what's involved in this conversation and what it feels like to have a vision and hear God say to you. Um, but these words came to Abram. He doesn't doubt who they're from. And, and here they are. And so it starts out, don't fear. In a worldly sense, he would have every reason to fear. He says, I'm a shield to you. Um, this is very similar to the promise that God has already made to bless those that bless Abram and curse those that curse Abram. And so this, is a, you know, this isn't the first time God has said things like this to him. And um, he winds up with this last line, it says, your reward shall be very great. Now, this is a little bit less specific than the kinds of things God has said to Abram in the past. In the past, he's talked about go out and look, walk, the, walk through the land of what would become the land of Israel, and everything that you see is going to be yours. Uh, look, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust. Um, and so this time it's like you're going to get a great reward. Abram has already received these other promises. He's already heard from God several times. But Abram has what seems to me an interesting response. And that is, Abram says, What are you going to give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? What's Abram really saying to God here? You can read this a couple of different ways. Yes. Yeah, I, you know that you could you could you could take it to that point in the sense that why do you say that? I'll let you say it. I don't have to say it. Well, the way you're saying it, I'm assuming he's not confirming, but he's refuting re re back to him. What? What? Yeah. Um, okay. Anybody want to offer up anything else? Because there's a couple of ways you can take this. He's already very wealthy. So yeah. the greatest yeah. reward would be a son. Yeah. I mean, to him, in his, his mind. Well, I don't want to read things into it that are not here. But, Lord, what do you give me since I'm childless? In other words... Things are not meaningful because I'm looking down the road and I don't see an heir. And he doesn't put the word yet on it. I'm tempted to say I don't see an heir yet. But Abram doesn't put that on it. He, he just simply says, what are you going to give me? I'm childless. I don't, I don't have... Stuff doesn't mean as much. Um, you know, we, when he left home, how old was he? Remember? Huh? 75. Left? So, so he's out here 75 years old when he started all these stories. I mean, I can see where it's like your perspectives on importance in life changes as it ages, doesn't it? You know, you're looking ahead, ready to conquer the world. You got one set of objectives, and then you get a little older and you go, well, that stuff wasn't as important as I thought it was. What's more important are these people and these things. And as you continue to move through life, doesn't your perspective change on what's important? And here's Abram saying that. Now, you could take this another way and say, you know, he may have been saying specifically, what are you going to give me that's going to be so great? Because I just don't, 
I don't have an heir, you know, I just, meaning in this life is a little limited because of that. You could also be, he could also, you could take this another way and saying, um, what I really am focused on, Lord, is your other promise that hasn't yet happened. Um, and I, I think there's an, some interesting things coming up about this interaction. Um, and so, and, and what is this heir is Eliezer of Damascus. Do you know what's going on there? So what, I mean, there, there's a couple of different things that are out there, but the main one out there is if you don't have an heir, then it's going to be some servant in your household that's a chief servant or whatever. One of your main servants is going to functionally be your heir. And so they will be the ones to inherit this and to move all that through. And so most likely Eliezer, that is somebody he picked up in Damascus that is his heir. Some folks in their commentaries point to Damascus as being kind of a banking city and saying, you know, this is my financial administrator. He's going to wind up with all this stuff. Uh, it, regardless, this is somebody in his house, right? It's Eliezer uh, is moving around with him or is a part of his his group, and that's the one, not an heir, not a physical descendant of Abraham that's in line to receive these things at the present time. Uh, when we go on to verse 3, it's kind of a repeat of the question, but from a little different angle. And Abram said, since you've given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. So that tells us that Eleazar was born in the house. By not house, we don't mean the physical house, but born in his, in, in his group, in his uh, ownership and influence and and the collection of people moving with him and so he, he looks to God and says since you've not given us a child this is what's going to happen um, and you, you could say you know it, we've, we've been told he's faithful we've been told Abram is uh, believing God and trusting God just in the last chapter he's clearly pointing to God as the one who has given him what he's got and so he is, he's, he's subservient to God through his gifts to Melchizedek. And yet here he's saying, you know, because of this, this is where we are today. What are you going to give me? And verse 4 then is a, is a response. And um, as it's given to us, uh, the New American Standard translated, Then behold, th this is an exclamation point that's put on this. You know, God reacts to this with a strong response. I don't mean strong like confrontive. I mean strong with significance. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man will not be your heir. Probably said in that behold probably means this was said with some emphasis. He's not going to be your, heir, be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. You are going to have a physical descendant. It's interesting here. God says all this in the singular. And, and that would be normal in that the eldest son usually was the heir. And yet later on they would have it done by apportionment. But God says you've got one coming. And that's what it's going to be, not Eleazar. And so God gives a pretty strong response here to make it strong. This is the case. And obviously, this is not the first time God's given this promise, is it? Let's go back and look at Genesis 13, 14 through 16. This is the last time previous to this event where God made the promise. Genesis 13, 14 to 16. Who can read that for us? The Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated them, Now raise your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as plentiful as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be counted. Pretty, pretty clear response, isn't it? You're going to have descendants. 
And this doesn't mean just somebody in your household that's going to get the privilege of being your heir. This means people that come after you out of your own personal lineage. Now let's back up to the previous time, Genesis 12:2. This is the other time that in Genesis is recorded a similar promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Yeah, a lot of promises in that passage. We could spend a lot of time there talking about the various aspects. For example, the last one, I'm going to bless the whole world, the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth through you. That's a reference to the coming Christ. But in this case, he says, you're going to have a lot of descendants. I'm going to make you so many descendants that there will be a great nation, a great peoples that will come up out of this. So here's Abram now in chapter 15 saying, what are you going to give me? I'm childless. So is this a lack of faith? How, how would we look at Abram here? It's just simply a question going, you know, right at this moment, I don't have that. Are you, you told me you're going through this, when is this still happening? Yeah, because it ends with a question mark. Yeah. So yeah. He is questioning, I agree. He's wondering when this is going to happen. So um, questions aren't terribly abnormal from among people, even in the midst of promises from God. Um, you remember what, when John the Baptist was in prison, what question did he send to Jesus? Are you the one? Are you the one? And yet, when Jesus came for the time of his baptism, he said, there he is. When, his, when John's disciples said, hey, Jesus is getting all the attention now. Our group's not growing. We're kind of fading away or diminishing. And John said, that's just exactly the way it should be. We're just here to announce the great Messiah coming, in a sense, is the way he said that. And yet, John's in prison, and he's, he needs some assurance, doesn't he? Here's Abram. You know, it seems like he's pretty well settled. God is blessing him as he defends his area. He's got allies. Things have gone pretty well. He's pretty, he's starting to grow some roots in that area uh, up by the Oaks of Mamre. And here's God saying, hey, I'm going to bless you. And He's no different than we would be, even if we trusted the promises to be ready to say, you know, God, I, I really would like some more detail. <laughs> How are you doing this? I mean, what's, what's coming? And so uh, here's Abram. I mean, I think in, in some senses, there's a little doubt, a little question mark about how's, what's going on. At the same time, I'm not saying he doesn't have faith. And do we go through doubts? Yeah. And I make a joke of you at that. Yep, we all are. I think two dimensional most of the time. I'm not it takes me studying scripture to get the third dimension out there. And and even as we look at the third dimension, I mean if we read through the book of Revelation or the prophecies of Daniel, do we have some concern about what might be coming our way? I mean, do we really go, yeah, you know, I can't wait for persecution to get real physical. I mean, that's just not, I mean, we look at the world, we have questions. We have promises of God <clears throat> that are um, just fantastic, and we're even going to hint at the new covenant before we're done today. But uh, when, we, when, we, when we see all those things, doesn't mean life's going to be easy, does it? Or without moments where we go you know this just isn't exactly what I anticipated and maybe maybe we, we can't put we can't get inside Abram's head and know exactly what he was thinking <clears throat> but we get a little bit of, of maybe that's going on here with Abram uh, yes sir I'll be looking inside that he's this is all a vision so he's even visioning himself 
Sure. Well, yeah, and I don't know if he's third person outside, out of body. I don't know if, I don't know how all that's happening because it's not really described here. I would, think but, if, I would think that if he actually faced him face to face without vision, he'd be on his, he'd be on his face. Most of the time people act as dead men him. when they come face to face with God. Yeah, I, you're, you're right, Rick, and I wish I had more. Oh, I wish Moses had sat down and said, let me describe this in great detail. <laughs> But, you know, Moses gave us what he gave us by the, by the inspiration of God. So what we know here, though, is this is a real-time communication between God and Abram. And I think it's significant that when uh, Abram responds, or when God responds to Abram, he is very clear. This man's not going to be your heir. Set that aside. And, and, and he responds. But one of the things he doesn't do is chastise Abram for asking the question. And I think that's very similar to what we see in the recorded Psalms of David when he was lamenting or questioning or saying, God, this looks bad. You know, I want to praise you. I can't praise you if I'm dead. I mean, God doesn't seem to chastise David for that. And the good news for David is in almost all of those psalms, maybe all, I haven't stopped and looked to, to, to count it up, but David turns to praising God before he's done and recognizing God's good role in his life. But so here's God continuing to respond. So he says he's not going to be, be here, your heir. And then he goes out to verse 5. And he says he took him outside, God, there's a lot of pronouns in here, at least the way the New American Standard did it. Sometimes you have to work at it. But God took him outside, so we learned something about the vision. It must have been happening inside. But anyway, he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to do it. And I know we're imagining things here, but I imagine God paused for a second or two or three or ten to let Abram, you know, here's the command of God, count the stars if you can. Oh boy, this is going to be a job. But, and he said to him, so shall your descendants be. You're concerned about descendants. You're going to have so many descendants, nobody's going to be able to sit down and even count them all. And then God reaffirms who he is, some history. I am, in verse 7, the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land and to possess it. So he does some history. I brought you out. There was a purpose. I told you I was going to take you to a land. We didn't tell you where it was. I brought you here. You are established. You are going to possess this. And uh, Abram has a response. Now, and this is kind of an interesting response to me. He's just defeated the kings of the east. They were the strong kings. They came over to make the kings of the west, the land of Canaan and that surrounding area, subservient. And so Abram just did that. And then Abram said to him in verse 8, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? And you know, it's just really impossible to get inside Abram's head here, but clearly it's a legitimate question. Like a timeline. Yeah, how do I know this is going to work out? What, what can you point me to? It's almost like the Israelites asking for another sign. And God does not seem to get exasperated. Um, he, he, I, he takes it a different way. I skipped verse 6, didn't I? I don't want to skip verse 6. Go back up to verse 6. When he said, count the stars, this is what your descendants will be, something happened there. Even though Abram's going to go ahead and ask the question I started in on out of, out of order here. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Who wrote these words? Who penned Genesis? Moses. Let's... Let's recognize that as God is establishing Israel, descendants of Abram to become Abraham, the Jews, 
This is early on. This is before there's even a descendant. It's recorded in the Old Testament, out of which are going to come all the laws and the ways to behave and the animal sacrifices and all those things. Moses was directed by the Holy Spirit to write that at that moment he believed. Then he believed. The then says after that. So clearly Abram, his belief is cast in stone at that point or, or fortified, whatever we want to say there. He believed in the Lord. It's out of this moment of belief, after the promise about all these descendants, that it says, and he reckoned it as to him as righteousness. Who reckoned it? God did. To who? Abram. As righteousness because of his belief. Now let's go over to Romans 4, 5. And I'm pulling this out of a, a passage about following the law versus um, living by faith, by being saved by faith. Or just There's a lot going on here. And so out of a fairly strong, very logical, somewhat detailed, complicated um, explanation from Paul, I'm pulling one verse out of it. But, but it'll work. Romans 4, 5. This is one of Paul's trump cards in explaining to the Christian believers that it's not something they do, but it's a reckoning from God that makes them righteous, and faith is connected to that. So let's read Romans 4, 5. And this is Paul's point, and at multiple times, he's, what he's doing here is he is quoting this verse. This is where that basis that Paul uses is brought into the understanding of these believers that it's, their faith is reckoned to them as righteousness. You see it expounded upon over in Hebrews chapter 11. And so Paul takes this Genesis 15, 6 verse as an explanation of this as a fact as well as as a principle of how God works. So sorry about skipping verse 6. Questions, comments so far? I've been kind of going on. I didn't check that out. So I would have to look. I don't know. Would that be his saving moment? I mean, Yeah. Uh, clearly, God chose him, and I mean, much like as he dealt with Noah, um, it was he reckoned Noah as righteous. Just said, "You're gonna, you're my righteous um, testifier, preacher." as we work our way through this, um, God clearly pulled Abram out of a similar situation. Uh, uh, for all appearances, he was a pagan living in a pagan land, and God said, yeah, I want you to do something, and he responded, and there we are. I don't know the answer to that, but one thing I will say here, we were, we were talking about how this, how God might be viewing all of Abram's interaction with him, but clearly when... Uh, he, when it says, and so he, Abram, believed in the Lord, verse 6, the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. It wasn't that Abram passed some test of logic or statement in these verses. The test that Abram passed upon which God said, I'm going to consider that righteous and consider you righteous was faith. It was believing and, and that's shot to be encouraging to us. We might have moments of doubt, and we might have moments where we question God, where we look to God and say, this is not what I thought you were going to do. This is, this, is, this, 
is this the way it's really going to be? And if out of those moments we turn back around in belief to God, I think God will take those moments and count them up into understanding that ultimately we're still considered righteous based on our faith. We can make some pretty lousy mistakes. We can. We do make some pretty lousy mistakes. Uh, we either in thought and what we think about God or in the actions we take that are in rebellion to God. But ultimately, if we keep put our trust in God and keep believing in God, he's still going to count that as righteousness. There's other things in the New Testament I would encourage you to do. Read through John, 1 John, and those, you know, there, there are good responses to God that we're called to make. Um, but it is faith that's going to lead to be considered righteous in the God's advice, in the eyes of God that we want to pursue. Anything else? That's a good question. I wish I knew the answer to if God has called him righteous before. I haven't specifically looked to see if that's true. Maybe somebody here knows. Do you know of another time prior to this God called him righteous? Well, that's something we can, I mean, that's an easy concordance look. Um, but I've not done it. Um, so verse 7. God said to him, I am Yahweh. It, 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 more than just saying, I'm, I'm the Lord, I'm the one. It doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm the one that took you out of the land of Ur. He says, I am Yahweh. The I am name. The formal name of God. The, uh, the existence of and I brought you, this is the history, I brought you out of the land of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. And Abram says, O oh Lord, how may I know? And so in verse 9, we begin to get into the first, well, to the formal covenant that God makes with Abram. And God gives Abram something to do. In verse 9, he says, bring me a three, this is his response to that question. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, verse 10's got a lot of pronouns in it in the New American Standard. But as best I can sort them out, it's very clear in the first one. Then he, Abram, brought all these things to him, Yahweh, and cut them in two, this is Abram still acting, laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Now, sometimes it's not fun to try to help us get the image of what things look like, and this might be one of those, because what he did would be slice. Now, I always envision it this way. I don't know that this is necessarily the way it has to be, but he slices these animals in two. And I always figured the left side of the animal on one side and the right side of the animal on the other. And he faces them so that, the, that, that you could pick them up and put them back together, okay? And he does this with the three four-footed animals. And, but he didn't cut the birds. Now, just to finish out the story, so you can imagine this is out here laying open. It's not pleasant, is it? bloody, dead carcasses cut in two, and the birds of the prey come down. The, the God-given scavengers that helped clean up our world from time to time came down, but Abram drove them away. So why did Abram do that? Because this was the gift of God. Well, but did God tell him to do this? <coughs> huh? No. Well, if he did, it isn't recorded here. And so there's a little bit of conjecture going on, but in all probability, um, this was, I mean, and, and there are other cases where we know from history, this was the typical, most formal way to establish a covenant, was something like this. There are specifics here that you don't see, but uh, we do see uh, some examples of similar kinds of things. There's one over in Jeremiah, but they don't cut them just in two pieces. But anyway, apparently it was clear to Abram what God was asking for was we're going to have a covenant. 
And this was how covenants were done in ancient days. And the whole imagery here is that if I don't keep my promises, may these things be done to me. Okay? And so Abram sets this up. God asked for these animals. Abram sets it up. It's out there. And then apparently we wait because there's enough time for the birds of prey to come down and a few other things. In verse 12, so we're just about at the end of the day, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Um, just stopping here to make a note, we have one other case in the Old Testament already with a deep sleep described like this. And this was when Adam underwent a deep sleep and the rib was removed and God fashioned woman out of Adam's rib. During the time of this deep sleep, and we get this behold again, so this is a, a, a statement we should see with strength, with prominence, terror, and great darkness, the way the New American Standard puts it together. Rick, when you read it, what did your word say? Uh, what came upon Abram? A deep sleep and great darkness fell upon him. And great darkness. Uh, they add terror to it here in the... And you had a word, though, that went with the terror. Dreadful, that was the word. So this great feeling of dread or terror and darkness came upon on Abram. And God said to Abram in verse 13, now how did this happen in the middle of the deep sleep? I don't know if it was dreamlike or what. And maybe it's after he is wakened. Um... But God said to him, so his communication is occurring again, know for certain, be sure of this. Your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will judge the nation on whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So what is God describing for Abram here? What's that? The time of Egyptian slavery. slavery. Now, it doesn't start that way. It starts out very strong, doesn't it? Because we have Joseph, and we're going to get to that as we study through the book of Genesis. But we have Joseph goes, and he's important, um, and things go well, but eventually they forget who Joseph was. And so these people are enslaved. They're even feared because their numbers are growing and they're prospering. And so they're being beaten down. We'll get, we won't get into all that. That's in the book of Exodus. But this is what's going to happen. And so your descendants, there are many, and there are going to be many, many more after these folks, but your descendants are going to, for 400 years, find themselves as slaves in another land. And they will be sojourners, meaning they're not citizens. They're living as foreigners. Verse 14, But I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards, so at the end of these 400 years, they will come out with many possessions. Now, who's the most likely reader, first readers? We all readers of it. Who's the most likely first readers of what Moses is writing here? What's that? Who would, who would get the first chance to read these words? The people who came out of Egypt. He's just described what these people have been through as they were led out of Egypt. Did they not come out with many possessions? And so here they came out with many possessions. But as for you, and, and, and Egypt was judged, the plagues, the big plague of the firstborn dying, the event at the Red Sea where God drowned the armies of Egypt. And so uh, they're judged. And then in the, and, and, but he says, as for you in verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You're not going to have to go through all that. You're going to have an easier time of it, an easier walk. You will be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. So that's the fourth generation after being in Egypt. And here's an interesting statement. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. What is God saying there? 
More to come. This has a connection with waiting for the fourth generation, that 400-year gap. Can you see it? What is it? Yeah, he's got judgment coming on the Amorites, but they, their equity has not yet reached the point that God is ready to wipe them out. And so he's going to let them, he's feeding rope, if you will, to the Amorites to use our ways of describing things. And they're taking rope and they're just creating their own mess. And he says, it's just not time yet. They haven't, they haven't reached the fullness of their iniquity where it's time to judge them. So I'm going to let your descendants go over and be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And then I'm going to bring them back at the fourth generation when the... Uh, iniquity of the Amorites are complete and then in verse 17 when the sun had set and it was very dark so now it seems like we're back where Abram is alert he's not in this deep sleep anymore but there appeared a this says smoking oven you said a fiery pot a smoking pot uh, a flaming torch which passed between the pieces on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, So who is passing between the pieces? God. If this were a covenant where both parties had conditions to meet and things to do, like if I was making a covenant with you to never go to war with you and you were making a covenant to do something for me or whatever, we would both have to walk through these pieces. But in this case, only God does because this is an unconditional covenant. God is promising to Abraham, I'm going to keep this covenant. And it's all God. And this is what he says. To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So what bunch of ground did God just promise to Abram? We'll look at that in a minute. But then he lists all of these peoples that they're going to take over their space. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Gergesite, and the Jebusite. So there's groups of people that God says to Abram, they're going to they're have all of this. this. This is a little small, but this is Israel. And the river Euphrates is clear over here. Past Jordan, past Syria, halfway in the middle of what's modern-day Iraq. And so that's one end of it. The other end, it says the great river of Egypt. Does somebody else have any other terms? The river of Egypt? Well, that's what I thought. And I'm still tempted to think that. A lot of the commentators say there was a river pretty much at the southern border of Judah that was known as the Egyptian River, that that's where you cross to get into Egypt. Well, do we know for sure? I don't know. But here's an interesting thing we can say on the other end of the border. When has Israel had the ground clear to the Euphrates? So that may be a promise that yet is yet to be completely fulfilled. Um, but this is a covenant. This is the Abrahamic covenant. It is without condition. It is something God tells Abram will happen. You can count on it. And this is the covenant that we talk about. Questions, comments so far? Yeah, and 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 wadi is just a term for a river. Um, but anyway, I, I read several different commentaries, and I don't know. The more I read, the more I thought nobody really knows for sure at, at this point in time what God meant by that. And that's not to be frivolous, but uh, it's just really, really it wasn't clearly defined in a way that I'm going to say I know for sure. Rick, I have a question. Yeah.
I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. It was obviously a part of the custom that God followed in this uh, one with Abraham. And, um, but I, I don't know for sure. I know, Dave, you've looked a lot at covenants. Is there something there I'm not knowing that I should know or could know about the role of the birds? <coughs> Yeah, that's that's where I would have to go. Yep. So when you look at this, it's it's real easy to see that Abram has. I'm sorry. Any other questions or comments? No, I think that no. That is a that is a promise for history for all history. Oh, I, I, I would take the word may out of it. Yeah. Okay. At, at either at some point, Israel did have all that ground, and I just am dumb enough to not know it. I don't think that's the case. I really think this is going to be part of what we see in the end times, is Israel's influence is going to, they're going to expand some more somewhere along the way. And it would be, I think, easy to say, when you look at the history of modern Israel since 1948, and I'm going to tell you that most of Israel would not agree with this statement. Some of Israel would. But it's clear that God has ordained and protected and made the nation of Israel work. Uh, when you look at the, the, the short wars and the success of Israel and, and how they have succeeded in continuing to exist in the midst of a whole sea of nations that every one of them wishes they weren't there, and they're not all real weak nations. Some of them are pretty weak. Some of them aren't so weak. Some of them have very powerful friends. And uh, we're not studying that in prophecy today, but I think that all comes to bear then in end times when all of the world pretty much goes against Israel. Any other questions or comments? Those are good questions. So I want to take you to this as our closing. Abraham was certainly a special person in a special place that God selected to be a special beginning of a nation. And it's easy to look at, at Abram and say, you know, what a prominent character. And he certainly is prominent for all of his descendants. Uh, he's also prominent in some of the stories, some of the pictures that Jesus gives us about like for example the rich man and Lazarus you know Lazarus winds up where at the bosom of Abraham you know there, there, there's clearly Abraham has a role and he was a very significant person and he was a privileged person in one sense I don't mean privileged the way modern people please I wish I'd have picked a different word already but he, he was a man blessed by God that's the right way of saying it uh, he was given multiple blessings, including wealth. Everything wasn't easy. Occasionally, he took things into his own hands, and it didn't work out so well. Both times were when he tried to tell people that I'm thinking of right now were when he tried to tell people that Sarah was his sister instead of saying, and she's my wife, leave her alone. He was, he was sometimes fearful, had his own answers to things, um, and so on. But I want to tell you, and I want to point out to you, um, some other special privileged folks. Go over to Romans 8. I want to read 14 through 17. Romans 8, 14 through 17. If you've got it, go right ahead. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, 
fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, if you were one of the people that the Spirit had testified to, that you are the Son of God, would you rather be Abram? I mean, just compare that for a minute. I mean, Abram was a special guy, and he was certainly blessed and deserved to be. And in some senses, maybe you'd say, well, there's parts of being Abram that would be attractive in the sense of being interacting with God, having the visions, and all of those things. But I want to hold out for you, and this is where I talked about the new covenant. You're part of a covenant multiple times greater than the covenant that God made with Abram. Go over to Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. This is Paul talking to the people at Colossae, obviously. He's talking primarily to Gentiles. Gee, that applies to us, as far as I know everybody here. What does he say? Colossians 1, 21 through 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Want to change places with Abraham? I, I wouldn't. This is a better place to be. You are living under a far superior covenant. And at some point in time, I think we'll find the time in here to talk about the new covenant. But we ought to look at Abram with a sense of awe that God would, God would, it wasn't Abram that was special, it was God that was special, and he chose Abram, and he made a nation out of Abram, this childless white husband of a barren wife, and made him a great nation, and gave him great promises, and fulfilled those, not out of who Abram was, but out of who God was. Out of that same God person, that creator of the world, the magnificent existence, we have been brought close to God, though we were once enemies and far off. We have a better covenant to cherish than the one that Abram and his descendants have. I want to take you to one more place and we'll close this out. Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5 Make sure that your character is free from the love of money being content with what you have for he himself has said I will never divert you nor will I ever abandon you. Now this is a promise, not a covenant but the comparison here is let your way of life be free from the love of money Money, in this case, represents the goods of the world or maybe even the world systems to some extent. The bottom line is I want to borrow the principle out of this and apply it. Why should people be free from the love of money as believers in Christ? Because he himself, God himself has said, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. In comparison to anything you want to look at, in this physical existence, it's nothing compared to who God is and his relationship with us. So while we should look at this covenant with Abraham with a lot of fascination, with a lot of understanding of what God is doing to make a man who was barren as far as offspring was concerned, he turned him into a great nation, and he will continue to be an expanding nation in our time 
from all appearances and not from all appearances from the promises of God and we have a much better place and when we look at that we ought to realize that we are extremely blessed we also should connect the new covenant started back in the promises of Abraham through you and your descendants all the people of the earth are going to be blessed and so they link together questions comments yes sir Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. That's the right connect. That's a good connection. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, pretty much when you talk about Israel, you talk about the Jordan and West. But when the twelve tribes established themselves in Israel. They were given ground to the east, but all 12 tribes went to fight in the west, and so that's an interesting story to go look at. The people east of the Jordan kind of, that didn't seem to hold. They didn't seem to keep their ground as well as they should have. So, all right, well, let me close with a word of prayer, and I'll let you go. Father, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you through the Spirit of Christ, through the Holy Spirit, that you bear witness to us as your children. It is precious, it is beyond description, it is unearned. Even our faith is a gift from you. Thank you for loving us in this way. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.